Yes, yes, I'm in a concert right now. Yeah, yeah, you are listening to our talk with GD. With G and D, and today I'm with my very good friend, confidant, artist, G. G, how are you? Well, it's actually odd that we're doing this during the day. Yeah, but it's it's weird to be drunk this early. <laughs> but that's fine. You can find us on our website, Art G and D Talk. Just give them the real one, just the real one, Art G, type out and D Talk. Thank you, Gregory. <laughs> All right. What have you been up to? Yeah. Uh, I've been doing uh, a bunch of uh, ceramic stuff, um, mm-hmm. and mostly dealing with transfers. So some loving your plates. Pretty, yeah, a lot of a lot of plates. I just made a new uh, plate foundation, so I'll, I'll be showing some different styles and trying to get a show in the city. Oh, really? Excellent. Yeah. Very cool. The Han Solo plate is my favorite. Just the Han Solo gun. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is stellar. That's like the, yeah, it uh, it bleeded out a little bit, but it says blaster on it too. The glaze work on that is tremendous. Absolutely. Yeah, that tremendous. was a raku piece. My gosh, yeah. Yeah. We'll post that up on talk notes because that's that's a beautiful piece. All right, so David. Yeah, Gregory. We, we have it. We have a special guest today. We do have a special guest today, Gregory, and and truly. Do you, do you want to do you want to say who it is? Because I know you have it all written down. No, no, no. And you you keep your pie hole shut. All right. <laughs> A father, a husband, a stellar, and I repeat, stellar, barbecuer, writer, scholar, professor, composer, world traveler, penis, and just recently released an EP on Irritable Hedgehog entitled Inner Monologues, Venn Diagram of Six Pitches. Today... Please to welcome Dr. R. Andrew Lee. Thank you, Andy, for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'll, I'll correct two small things. One, I don't compose. And two, just be careful with the pronunciation of pianist. I mean, I've, I've heard some... Tease dropped before, but but that was that was particularly maybe it's better on your end where it's being recorded. No, uh, but exactly as it's coming through, it, it came out strictly as genitalia. Oh my gosh! Um, so yeah, I do I do play piano from time to time. But thank you for that lovely intro. Penis. No, I just I. Correct. You gotta get oh you gotta God. get that explosive T at the end, and I tend toward the pianist. Pianist. Uh, yeah. All right. Oh my God! Best intro ever. I'll take it. Truly, thank you for being with us. The intro that is. Andy, 
How are you? <laughs> I'm doing quite well now, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. What are you doing? So you are in Colorado as a professor at Regis University. And the subject? Well, music mostly. My primary role is as the, I oversee the liturgy, music for liturgies here. It's a small Jesuit university. Um, so I do that and then teach piano in the music department. How long have you been playing? 28 years. Excellent. As your first instrument or your only instrument? Pretty much my only instrument. I recently purchased a mandolin, which I fiddle around with from time to time. Excellent. Composition-wise, I thought you do compose. I don't. I enjoy playing pieces that call for improvisation, but no, I don't do any composing on my own. You have to read music. I mean, you're reading other compositions. Then. Yeah, yeah. And, and with, with great detail, too, in order to perform them. Most, yeah, most of the stuff I do is through composed, but the larger works that I play tend to be more improvisational. And the larger works pertaining to what time period? Everything, everything I do is pretty recent. The oldest piece in my repertoire right now is Dennis Johnson's November, which was written in 1959, also available from Irritable Hedgehog Records. Wonderful. Yeah, but for the most part, I'd say within the last 30, 40 years, tends to be and heavy rock right most yeah the death metal thrasher basically yeah any anything that refers to demons death and apocalypse and i'm on board with <laughs> especially as a church musician <laughs> so all of your works that that i've seen are all sort of are modern and usually described as minimal. Mm -hmm. Are there other styles of music that you enjoy playing? Well, yeah. I mean, yes, there's there's a lot that I enjoy playing. I still, in, I mean, most of my training is solidly in the canon of classical Western music. Okay. And from time to time, I'll, I'll pull out some Bach or Schubert or something. But no, as far as performance goes, that's pretty much my wheelhouse and what yeah. I stick to. The work that is recently done, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because it's a, it's a far stretch from Bach or the more traditional music, and which is a very interesting stretch uh, for the body of work that you're doing now. Yeah, so the inner monologues uh, written by a friend of the show, Ryan Oldham, he wrote the piece, it was during a power outage, and he just started playing around with these, these six tones and really sort of focusing, opening on this opening four note idea. Um, and it really begins actually as, as a lot of chunk of the music I play with, with quite a bit of silence. I should actually say is pretty strictly notated how much silence is called for within the piece. So in addition to how long the notes should be held, he'll give indications such as, you know, wait 30 seconds before the next chord comes in. So it opens rather sparsely and really sort of sets the mood and the tone for the, the pace of how the piece is going to evolve. And, and sort of just the smaller variations and ideas that spin off this opening four-note chord. The element that I, I really enjoy is the silence. 
and typically with music, you don't think of music as being silent. What are your thoughts on that? Why is that such a draw for you? Probably because I have three kids, so <laughs> it's quiet. <laughs> it's just great. No, I really, I really enjoy just the space that that allows and the way you begin to hear the environment differently, the way you begin to hear even the very notes differently uh, as things evolve very slowly and you in some ways are forced to observe other things beyond the surface level of the music and to pick out details and to hear the complexity of the sound that's that's always there but uh, gets oftentimes sort of lost in in the wash of busyness. What is the longest body of work that you have, such as Gregory was holding up November, uh, a work that you did in, was that 2013? That's the, the one he mentioned was the Dennis uh, Johnson November. My question truly is to you, is it all played out within five hours, the same time frame, or are they different takes? No, it, it's all essentially one take. Yeah, when I perform it, it's definitely just sit down, you know, and I, the piece doesn't end. I don't get up until, you know, the five hours are over. Really? Um, yeah. And so when we recorded the piece, so we recorded it in the uh, summer of 12. We got about two, two and a half hours in to the take, and then Logic crashed on us, the recording software. Um, I mean, everything had been saved, thankfully. But And then... Yeah, that happened once more, and there were a couple of times, I think once I stopped because I hit a blatantly wrong note, Uh, once somebody walked into the hall, (laughs) Uh, so there were a few little interruptions uh, here and there, but yeah, it uh, we weren't really sort I didn't do like two full takes of the thing, because it's improvisational, don't know how we would have edited such a thing. So, so what, Andy, I, I think Gregory's might cut out there, but so when people come to see you, they know what kind of style of music they're in for and the longevity yes. of a piece. <laughs> Gregory, <laughs> this is what I deal with actually every episode. Yeah, I think if I'm walking into a situation, like maybe if I'm at a university or something you know, at giving a more sort of standard performance. And I usually, with November specifically, I'll talk to the audience just for a few minutes. You know, this isn't like some sort of endurance prize, but but if you can, it's it's a lovely arc over the entirety of the, the whole piece. So if you're enjoying it, by all means, stick around. But When you're performing a piece, do you lose yourself or do you strictly focus on theory? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and perhaps less so for me, um, simply because if I was to get fully into like a, a meditative mindset, then I wouldn't be thinking necessarily about uh, other logistics <laughs> of the piece, you know, um, both sort of trying to keep the entire arc of the piece together, um, but also, you know, just silly things like, gosh, this B isn't speaking quite the way I want it to, or, you know, I need to be careful how I voice this chord coming up, and, you know, so, yeah, the 
the sort of more mundane uh, thought processes that I have to keep a hold of and not sort of let myself zone out. And actually I had kind of an interesting experience with that. The first longer piece I tried to play is Tom Johnson's An Hour for Piano, uh, which is pretty easy. It's all through composed, pretty easy to play through. But it's supposed to be kept at, at a precise tempo the entire time. And after about 30 minutes of playing the thing, I found that I was zoning out so much that I, I just had to stop. You know, I, I couldn't like focus on the piece anymore and what was going on. I, it became hard to sort of make that mental adjustment. So, uh, so it did take me a little while to sort of get used to, yeah, how much can I become meditative and enjoy the process and really sort of live in it while at the same time being able to craft the experience. specific ones like work that you just did of uh, Ryan's Venn diagram with the silence I mean you stated that already but you you don't find yourself getting lost in it with Ryan's piece um, as I said before the the silence is pretty strictly notated literally my thought process is just one two right just counting and and even spaces where the silences are more indeterminate I'm really trying to stay, keep sort of a heightened awareness of where it feels best for the next chord or the next note to come in. In fact, I never want a piece to ever feel like it's sort of coming to a halt, or I should say most of the time. Most of the pieces I play, I think, would die if it felt like the piece sort of stopped. Wow, like so like cliffhangers, just like keeping you on... Yeah, so that it, it always has a sense of propulsion, even though, even if, you know, that's almost imperceptible. Excellent. Ryan's piece, uh, yeah, if you just hand it to any piano player who, who read music, wouldn't, wouldn't look that different. I mean, there are some notational oddities, but even that sort of is explained in the preface. There are other pieces I do. I commission work from a composer, Randy Gibson, that's uh, for piano and electronics. It's about three and a half hours long. And that's just a page of written instructions. So there's, there's actually not a note anywhere. So there's a lot of room for interpretation then? Yeah, but yeah, we worked on the piece quite a bit together. He would bring in examples of what he'd come up with, you know, for the electronics to try out. We would try out different improvisational things. Um, so there's there's more to the piece than what's necessarily on the page, but yeah, it's basically just a, a rough l- outline of written instructions. The body of work that you're doing, to have an artistic expression, if it's not on within the music to kind of elaborate, uh, is that acceptable then? Or it, it, it all depends on the composer. I think the composers that I work with 
tend toward being open to that. So it is an open canvas for you. In, in, yeah, in some respects. There's the great John Cage quote, everything is possible, but not everything is permissible. Are you heavily influenced by Cage? I can't say heavily influenced, but I, in some ways, didn't come to appreciate Cage until I had gotten into some of this other music. Now, the music, uh, a lot of the music I perform is this collective of composers called Vondelweiser, often described as post-Cage, but very much influenced by Cage, along with other composers. So I, I sort of got hooked in with composers that were influenced heavily by Cage first before learning and exploring more of Cage's music and, and really beginning to appreciate that fully. No, but it's, it's wonderful that things, it seems, uh, are picking up for you and getting some really good responses from what work you're doing. Yeah, November got a lot of press and it got me, it continues to get me gigs. And now with the Randy Gibson piece, yeah, we got a, a great review of it in the Times. And I know that more reviews are forthcoming. So yeah, yeah it's, I mostly just feel fortunate that the music I'm interested in is capturing the same interest among these critics. And yeah, it, I've been really fortunate in that regard. Now, do you feel like when you get called to these shows, the audience just wants to hear your classics? And it's like, I don't want to play the classics anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I want to progress. I don't, I don't get a lot of calls for November as an encore or anything. <laughs> Truthfully, I mean, and thankfully, you know, most of the stuff I've been doing has been all along the same vein now for several years. But yeah, who knows if I ever decide I'm done with all this minimal music. That could be a really hard career shift. <laughs> Andy, what was your first piece of minimalist music you heard live? Yeah, so actually, one of the first I heard perform live uh, was uh, Philip Glass's Metamorphoses. And it was a um, University of Nebraska-Lincoln professor, Paul Barnes, who came to where I was as an undergraduate and played that. I think that was probably the first experience of hearing minimalist music live. Or I should say, the first thing that really caught my attention, though, was William Duckworth's The Time Curve Preludes. Dave McIntyre, who runs Irritable Hedgehog, I would go over to his house with some frequency as a grad student. He, for as much as I like to tout my own uh, grilling, barbecuing skills, he exceeds them. And, it, and he always had a well-stocked liquor cabinet, so that didn't hurt either. So, yeah, so I, I, I'd head over and spend time with... Dave would play something for me. It's the weird piano music by Sarabji or... Um, he was the one who introduced me to the well-tuned piano by Lamont Young. Um, but then, yeah, one day it was uh, the Time Curve Preludes, and it, it was a, as much of an epiphany moment as I've probably had in my time. And, yeah, I've been interested in this music since. Wow. And we can find your work online, yes? 
Yeah, everything's available through Irritable Hedgehog. It's just irritablehedgehog.com, or if you go to my website, randrewlee.com, I've got all the albums there as well. Some of the newer music that you've come into with the electronics elements, mm-hmm. what do you find more pleasing? The pure state of the piano or now the influence of electronics into... A, yeah. Um, like what's more enjoyable to you? Or does it fluctuate with what the music is or what piece you're working with? Let me... Uh, I'll say this because there, I mean, there, there are some pieces I perform that are just basically piano and tape track, you know, just fixed media, which is one sort of experience. This this Randy Gibson piece, with it being live, and since he's just manipulating the sound of the piano, he's not, he's not really adding to it. He's just amplifying and playing back aspects of the tone that's already there. So it's still, I don't know, it, it, it feels still like an extension of the piano and, and what I'm doing. So okay. So in that respect, I think I, I do generally still gravitate toward just the piano and the piano sound. And, and even when I'm working with fixed media, I feel like it's more sort of a, a duet sort of a thing. Have you been asked by other artists to utilize your music in any way? We've received a few requests. From there have been a few instances where there were professional dance groups that wanted to use some recordings. So I, I know that's happened. I've never seen video of that. If somebody wants to take something and, yeah, or is inspired by it, I think that's fantastic. So, I, well, <laughs> I was about to say I, I don't really know anybody in Hollywood. But a good friend of mine just had a show come out on Sci-Fi that he created called Blood Drive. So among everything else that's going to be plugged today... Oh my gosh, I'm gonna, I saw the previews I'm pl- for that, and it looks absolutely bizarre and fabulous at the same time. Yeah, so it's a grindhouse-inspired... Yes. This is, yeah, whatever you imagine the atmosphere or the emotion of the music that I do, I think this is probably the polar opposite. It is over-the-top violence, gore, sex... Yeah, grindhouse inspired, and but every episode is sort of like a different genre or inspiration, and yeah, it's it's a race where the cars run on blood. So what's not to like, right? What I really like too is knowing uh, James Roland a, a bit. He's just the nicest guy <laughs> in the world. Just the <laughs> just a lovable nice guy, and he, I I got to. I forget how long they were in South Africa, but they, they did all the filming out in South Africa. Fabulous. So just following the production on that. What's one of your favorite pieces? It's so difficult. I'll, I'll, I'll point to another um Another piece. Um, so Swiss composer Jörg Frey, a member of the Waldweiser group, he wrote a piece, his Klavierstück II. It's about 15 minutes long. But this piece 
Well, I actually had crowdsourced. I was getting toward the end of my schooling, and, and I was still doing a lot of standard repertoire, but beginning to explore all this new and fun stuff. And so I just crowdsourced. I said, hey, you know, these are some pieces I like. What else should I be learning? You know, what, else, what other scores should I be getting? Composer Scott Unrhyme, who is also the graphic artist for Irritable Hedgehog, um, suggested, among many other things, some music by Jörg Fry. So, so I got some scores, and I was really intrigued by this piece, is Klaverstück 2, because the, the piece is five total pages. I think at the bottom of the first page, from the bottom of page one to four or five, whatever it is, uh, he wrote out 468 fourths to be repeated. So two notes that are just repeated 468 times. But he didn't just put, you know, repeat 468 times, he wrote them all out. So that caught my attention. And I, yeah, so I was like, well, I've got to try this. I'm, you know, why would somebody do this? I've got to try this piece. And I played it, and it was the closest I've ever had to an out-of-body experience where I, I, I lost, uh, you know, I felt very dis dissociated from my hand as it was just repeating these notes. Wow. Uh, I felt like I was floating above the piano, and all I was hearing, you know, I, I stopped hearing the, the notes I was playing, and it was just like this drone of... Uh, like an organ, just these tones that were emerging from the piano that was just unreal. And I called Dave right away and uh, afterwards and I said, this this piece is so cool. And th that was sort of my first foray into, yeah, into this Bondivisor stuff that I now play quite a bit of. One of our main principles within our body of work is that we do lose ourselves in the piece and looking back at it that's when you can reflect in what is being done do you think the piece was written for that state i think it it was written to just explore again you know when the surface level becomes less interesting your ear gravitates towards other things yes. to start to hear just how rich these notes are and the overtones that come out of them. On the meditative side of things, I, I will say I've never experienced that again because if, well, because it was a practice situation. In a performance, I'd never sort of let myself get gotcha. that involved yeah. to, where I, to, I, to where I feel so disconnected from the instrument. Absolutely. That's why I love the show and, and talking to the individuals we do because there's so many layers that are upon the same level within visual arts within music because that's that's the part that fascinates me and it's like do you really need the audience <laughs> no it, it is good because certainly i can enjoy the music more if there isn't one yes 
at the same time, well, actually, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this, because I, I, I just performed the piece uh, in Ohio um, in May for the New Music Gathering. So a bunch of practitioners of recent classical music, most of whom play and compose much busier music, let's say. And so, I, you know, in that respect, you know, what I do... Yeah, I, I'm the oddball of the oddballs. Yeah. So, so I performed this piece on a concert, their their big Saturday night concert. I was, and it was a long concert, multiple performers, um, and I was second on the program. And I just did this piece, so I only performed for 15 minutes. It was received really well, uh, you know, as far as I could tell, in terms of both how attentive the audience seemed to be and how quiet they were. And then I went and sat in the audience for the remainder of the show. And I just sat there totally depressed. <laughs> okay. And I didn't realize why until afterwards, once the full concert was over, and then people were coming up to me and asking me questions about the piece or saying how much they enjoyed it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there was this huge gap of time from when I finished performing to my normal sort of post-concert routine, which I'd never even thought about before, I didn't realize how much I needed sort of that validation of what I enjoy doing. Right. Which was uh, another interesting question, too, is the fact that unlike a rock concert, okay, an, a musician can get into it more from the crowd's participation. With mm -hmm. the work that you produce, it's the lack of the audience not to interrupt a silent moment. Yeah, no, but it's the same How thing. How do you it's gauge, the... like, I am doing well? No, Like, I it's... can feel the energy of the crowd by their silence. Exactly. It's the exact same principle. The audience is just engaging it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, what's, what's difficult as a performer is when the audience is restless. You know, people are... <laughs> And there, gotcha. there are going to be times, especially, in a, you know, and I understand that in a longer piece, and I'm always kind of amused when, as a group, the audience decides, okay, it's okay to make little adjustments to how we're seating and stuff. Yeah, when an audience is fidgeting around quite a bit, or, you know, a few people walk out, that lack of attention can really get to me. Are there any like visual artists that you really connect with? Not usually. <laughs> um, and, and nor, I mean, I even remember this as an undergrad. We all had to take a composition course. He'd ask, well, how would you describe this music? And people are imagining all sorts of different scenes and stuff. And I'm like, I got nothing. <laughs> you know, this just, I'm just experiencing the, I'm not making any associations with it. So I guess in that respect, uh, my imagination's a little dull. Uh, so no, no, I don't hear music when I see art. I, I do really enjoy visual art. Do you gravitate more towards the minimal stuff? I uh, love abstract expressionism. Probably the most moved was at MoMA, uh, seeing the huge uh, Jackson Pollock they have there. And yes. I, I think I, I, I probably sat there for 45 minutes just in awe. Seeing his stuff in person is just, it, it's like yeah. seeing a religious it's, icon yeah. or something. It's it, the massive scale that engulfs 
the eyes and the senses. And actually, uh, when I was in Poland last fall, uh, I got to see a recent newly opened exhibition of Byshynski's work, uh, sort of post-apocalyptic surrealism that just really caught my attention. Really amazing. And I loved how they displayed the works too, because it was really dark space that you went into and then all the paintings were you know, directly wow. lit. Yeah, just the painting. But yeah, his use of color and imagination. I mean, it's really weird. But, I mean, the person I was with, you know, uh, the my guide for this, for the festival I was playing, the Unsound Festival, you know, I, I said I was curious of seeing some contemporary art or something. And she's like, well, we can go see this, but it's um, it's really dark material and really kind of disturbing. and. I walked out of there like, la-da-da, that was amazing. I'm in such a good mood. (laughs) (laughs) People are coming out crying. And I I was just so amazed by all the aspects of his work. I don't know. I I was overwhelmed by my intrigue as opposed to getting into the work and feeling really emotional about the scenes themselves. Well, within your um, travels, what, what was one of the more interesting places that you you play like venue wise probably cafe Otto in london was one of the best experiences i had i did and it, this was actually around the release of november so this would have been march of 13 and i did two shows there the first one more sort of a standard concert and then the second night i did november it's in an interesting part of london you know, it's not my favorite word in the world, but it, it had a really cool vibe to it. You know, and it's, it was a small space, so if 50 people showed up, it was packed. Acoustically, too? Uh, acoustically, yeah, in that, the, in fact, I, I'm pretty sure I played Klavierstück 2 on the first night. There, They had these wooden chairs, which could be a little bit squeaky, but, at, you know, as I was playing, it, it was really quite nice just those little ambient noises and a little bit of street sound generally speaking um some of the best spaces you know have all been non-traditional i've played in several art galleries um or yeah or situations like a cafe or something some of my least favorite are actually just the really sort of standard recital hall sterile situations yeah it you know and where there's that disconnect from the audience um and the sad part is that's where the best pianos are (laughs) so uh yeah so it's a trade-off in that regard but all right well i just had a thought about something and i'll i'll pose it to both of you guys when i was thinking about a bunch of different sort of famous minimalist visual artworks paintings and the thing that so many of them have in common is the scale mm-hmm. and i'm thinking about rothko's it's it's interesting because the idea of minimal you would think would be small but it's not and when when i'm looking at all of your work a lot of the things that it has in common yeah. is the length they're all long you know so there's there is this connection with with scale and minimal wow. and and it seems to sort of at odds with itself in a way in some respects it's almost necessary well at least with the music you know because of the temporal aspect of it so if you're going to have something 
if you're going to experience one thing and you're going to give that sort of a minimal effect, it actually needs to be stretched out so that, yeah, you just keep hearing the same thing or some similar thing for a long time. I think that's the only way that works temporally. And, and the interesting thing too, uh, I keep coming back to these 468 fourths, even though I've played the piece uh, many times now, it's still, you know, it takes me seven and a half minutes or so to play those three minutes maybe until I really start hearing the complexity of sound. Even though I know what's supposed to be there and I can, I can pick up on things immediately, it's like this unconscious process that my brain just has to go through to, uh, until I can start to really fully appreciate what, what is interesting about the piece. I think to, to sum that up, what uh, Andy was talking about, is breathability. In order to appreciate mm. the nuances with inside of something, the breathability is the, the length, the, the size of it. Yeah. And within the artwork, it's the large scales that gives it breathing room to appreciate the silence and the small elements well, that are in there. Well, yeah. And it, it also has to block everything else out. Right. You know, if you're if you're going to appreciate, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a single simple thing or a single simple idea, you can't have a lot of busyness around it. You know, or extraneous things to distract Correct. you. Correct. Or just be black. It it would just be muddy. Yeah. It'd be muted. It, it it just it wouldn't yeah. have the the breathability to appreciate the overall. So what would happen if you played November and then at the end someone yelled out encore? I, I, no, I, I have a plan, which is that I would, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I would come out and perform uh, Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds. Really? <laughs> oh, excellent. It's the, it's the only response I, well I can think to such a thing. Well, Gregory, it's come to that time. Yes, sir. Unfortunately that we have to say goodbye to our, our, our very good friend here, composer. Still not a composer. <laughs> just stop there. Just, just stop there. Composers just put some stuff on dead trees, and I bring it to life. Andy, thank you very much for joining us. We greatly appreciate your time and your energy, and uh, continue on your great journey, and uh, look forward to seeing what is in the future for you. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I do apologize if, if you got uh, offended at any anything Dave may or may not have said I, I am, to uh, you or about you. not easily offended. So with that... <laughs>
<laughs> I thought with such a, a a pretty like high mark guess that we're gonna have to like not go low brow at all, I know. but you just went right for it. I think I did. Dave, my feet smell. Did I? I can smell my. Oh yeah, I can smell my feet. <laughs>